I'm going to start with some small talk and say, how's your day going aside from, you know, talking to untrustworthy media people? Sure. <laughs> okay, whatever, man, let's do it. Can you hear me, though? You hear me fine? Totally hear you, totally see you. And uh, your name pops up in my inbox a lot because, you know, Griselda, everyone's talking about that. Lessons in chemistry, the separate press releases from that. So you basically have two soundtrack releases coming really back to back. But when were those finished with relation to one another in other words when did you rap on griselda versus rapping on lessons in chemistry so lessons in chemistry finished um after griselda actually uh and and um it was later last year there was another project that we did um uh, as well that's that's coming out that's out now called monsieur spade that I was and so I got really lucky. It seems like I'm really busy now, but I was actually busy like a year ago. That's when it was like all these were kind of overlapping each other. And um, but, yeah, no, I, I got really lucky to be that busy. And then, you know, the strike happened and I played Zelda for a while. On which console did you play Zelda? Nintendo. Yeah, Nintendo, the Super, the Switch. I played I played Tears of the Kingdom and uh, beat it. I got all the battery packs, like the both rows, the green, all the way through the to the blue, and then um, I, I mean, I've gotten almost all the armor sets now, and now I'm just barely playing because I'm busy again, so I'm happy. But uh, you know, but I, I did beat the game before I got busy again, so I really just went away into. I played every Zelda game since 1987 or 86 when the first one was released. Adventures of Link, I remember it very well as the second one. Have you yes. composed any scores to video games? No, man, I've never really kind of sought that out. I'd love to do it. Of course, I'd like to do any any gig is welcome. You know, there's people that are really picky. They're like, you know, oh, I don't know. I do. I'll I'll do anything like that's fun. And and video game music's always been like something. And it's a very different process because we teach it at the pro school where I teach. And, and it's just a very different animal altogether. But I haven't been approached to do it. And but I'd love to do it, of course, any work, man. You know, let's let's go. You know, so I regularly have the pleasure of interviewing composers, and there's three or four boxes that you can put them in when I talk about high-profile composers mm -hmm. like yourself. And one of the boxes is they were in a band that was signed in their garage band. People, do you fit into that at all? Were you originally a garage band person? Dude, I was. I was 1985 to. I was in a rock band since then with my brother in in a garage in Kendall in Miami, and then we we had the dream and we didn't get signed. Then we I was in another band and then we had the dream. We made a record but didn't get signed. Then I moved to LA, LA and I, anyways, to keep it short, I've been in bands for a long time. We did get signed. Then we got dropped, and uh, so I have the behind the music. If you remember VH1, is oh. just for the old folks, you know. But you know oh, what I'm talking I, about. A hundred percent. I mean, yeah. Behind the Music was my favorite show for years. Now with goggles, you know, with, with the rose colored glasses off, I, I realized it was the same exact story every single time, regardless yes. of who the artist was. You go, exactly. Okay. Exactly. The thing is, we didn't even get to be on VH1. We just had our horrible story, you know. <laughs> Which we uh, label were you signed to? We were signed to a really cool, cool, small label called 333, but it was an imprint that was started by a director called Tom Shadiak. And oh, Ace Ventura, made... Tom Shadiak. Yes, sir. He had a record label. He he made so much money for Universal 
like the, the company that they gave him a record label. They're like, what do you want? He goes, I always wanted to start a record label. And he had the, a great heart, man. He really was a great guy and wanted to kind of see these bands be successful. He signed a, a band called Unified Theory that yeah. was, had the drummer of Pearl Blind Jam. Blind Melon. Uh... Blind Melon. Dude, you know that this is so cool. So Wait, that, they that's were the your first... band? No. Oh, okay. no. They were the first band signed. We were the second. The second band signed was a band called Killing Heidi from Australia. Yeah. That were like, and then we were the third band signed called Zoo Story. We got signed and we made the record. Unified Theory made the record, released the record, released the video. And then he had, it. honestly, it was one of those weird political things where they just, they, the, the distributor wasn't supporting him. So uh, when we went to go to radio, we really had to work it. We dr drove all around, you know, the, the country trying to get ads on radio, like the old school days. And uh, we got just a few ads. He added, even supported us by putting a song of ours in his movie called Dragonfly that he directed. But the movie didn't have much traction. And then he ended up making Bruce Almighty and he had a really big kind of comeback. But by that time, we were kind of fading away and like you know we got dropped and not by them but by the distributor like the whole thing his whole imprint basically had to fold so wow. we it was a real lesson in in the dreams being broken you know what i mean like and like things end and um so i got i got my training i guess in in the hollywood callus or whatever then and and uh i proceeded to get into classical music and teach that's what i wanted to do anyway and i started teaching and then i got it I, anyways, this thing happened like started like about 10 or 12 years ago. So I got really lucky that I'm getting to talk to you now. Well, it sounds like a comparable path to uh, Jeff Cardoni. Do you know Jeff? Oh, dude, I don't know about his background. I've just met him and hung with him a few times. and He's like super, super cool. And obviously he's super talented. But yeah, what, what, uh, what band was he in? He was a later member of Alien Crime Syndicate, who I don't remember if they were on MCA. The, the old nickname for MCA used to be the Musical Cemetery Association because they couldn't break <laughs> rock bands. There's certain labels. Arista was terrible with rock. MCA was terrible with rock. Yeah. Uh, as a music industry nerd who dabbled in management, you kind of learn that, oh, you signed to them? I hope the advance was big because your record's not going to be a hit. But I didn't Good. know that about you and Shadyac and all that. And you know, Yeah, you know, by the way, just to say, it was 333 was the name of the imprint. But it was Universal Records that was a distributor, right? It was through yeah. Universal. Or so was it they were Fontana? Because uh, <laughs> Universal used to have that weird Fontana imprint, which was their weird, like, this is kind no. of indie. No, dude, 333 was the, was the sort of day-to-day -day label. And they, they, were, they had those bands, and they were responsible, and he built it. And, but, man, it was, it was really hard because I never even – see, I only thought when – I always thought – because I grew up in Central America, man. I had – I had no idea I'd get to do this. I, I was positive that musicians were born in another island or another world, like they're alien, you know? The first time I saw a commercial for a Fender guitar, I freaked out because I thought you can buy that. Like, I'm not kidding. I really was that far away from it. So I always thought that when you made it, you were untouchable and things were perfect, but I got to see in Shady X experience going through the label, you know, how, how hard things can be for him. You know, he was gracious yeah. to us, man. He was really top-notch dude, man. Really, really great in an industry that, as you sound like you've experienced, you know what I'm talking about. For better or for worse, I do. And the, the other box that you go to after, you know, you find out, okay, no, the person did not have band experience. 
is that they apprenticed under somebody like a Hans Zimmer or something like that. And that was their gateway in that allegedly they wrote all the music that says Hans's name on there. In your case, was there an apprenticeship or what was your gateway to get that first no. film? No, you know, I, um, I was, I, the only way reason I'm getting to do this is because I had a guitar student called Scott Frank. And Scott Frank at the time was a writer and he had done Minority Report, Little Man Tate, Dead Again, Out of Sight. And I freaked out when I, I got an email. I had put my ad up in, in, when I was living in LA at Old Town Music and he emailed me and I walked into his office and I saw the posters, you know? And I was like, oh man, what, what do you do? He goes, I write. I go, you wrote those? He's like, yeah. I was like, holy crap, you know? And I started getting nervous, you know what I mean? Like uh, it was a Hollywood person, you know? And the joke I say, but it's true. I, I got home and I told my wife, I was like, oh my God, dude, you won't believe I met this incredible writer for Hollywood and he, he's done all these things. And he's done like, you know, dead again. She's like, dude, the dishes are on the right. <laughs> so I was just like, just get, we got dishes to do and a life to live, my friend. So, oh, yeah. Know, but, uh, but, uh, but it was, uh, it was a great experience. I just never thought I'd get to work with him. And at the time I was just teaching him guitar. He made his first movie. He was a writer, switched to directing and made a movie with James Newton Howard as a composer. And then um, for his second project he was working on, he said, you know, you've been, we've been like five or six years working on this and you've never asked me to hook you up. And I go, no, no, it's just, I'm in your world. I'm your, I'm your guitar teacher. I, you know, and I've never liked those people. They're like, hey man, I got, you know somebody, I got a screenplay. Can you, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't yeah. like being that guy. And so he said, listen, I'm, uh, you can, I'm writing something. Maybe you can write some music and help me write it. You're not going to get the gig, but at least you get experience. I was like, dude, that'd be so cool. That's how we started. And it was for a movie that went away. And for him, then I moved to Miami and then I found out he was working on a Liam Neeson movie. Mm. And I uh, and uh, and I emailed him, said, if this is true, because I read it on IMDb and, and I was like, if this is true, there's no way I won't be involved, even if you get like a professional composer later. And he sent me the screenplay. I started writing music like I had been on the other thing. And he showed it to the producers and I was cheap. So I got the gig, you know, that's the, that was the way in. So uh, not, not apprenticeship, but with him. And he was the only guy who hired me. He hired me in 2013. Then, uh, then that movie came out. No one hired me. He hired me for Godless. That came out. I won like awards. No one hired me because I had like two credits on IMDb. And then he hired me for Queen's Gambit and, and everybody kind of seemed to have seen it. And then I started yeah. getting a lot of calls and that changed everything. So he's my man. He's like everything to me. He really is uh, changed my life. So. Wow. So in terms of success, there's a lot of people like your Tommy Lee's of the world who become famous when they're 19. <laughs> and, and then you have your Rodney Dangerfields who make it finally when they're 55 or so 50, 55. You're sure. not you're, you're not danger 53 i'm 53 now man but I've been... you made it in your 40s but i guess, I guess you, yeah. you really had 20 something years of paying your dues oh bro yeah <laughs> i mean forever and it wasn't like i was i was technically done my goal really was academia and to become tenured which i am and like i wanted to follow that once the dream died with the band it was clear to me that that you know it, i had my fun you know you're young once that kind of thing. And so I just thought, you know, I did get to do, I op we opened for the who man at the Hollywood bowl. No one would know that or remember it was like, we were managed by doc McGee. 
Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Okay. Now let's back up for a second here. The Who has always, since the 80s, had kind of unknownish opening acts. I remember that. We're one of those. uh, Un American. Uh, my mm-hmm. friend Dan Byrne, who's become a movie composer in his own right, he's done a lot of the Judd Apatow movies. I know the name. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I had a, I met with him on some panel thing we did. Like a cool he, dude. Cool dude. He did uh, yeah, yeah. a lot of the Dewey Cox songs and the Russell Brand, I, whose name I don't think you're allowed to say for another two months, but a lot of the get up <laughs> to the Greek stuff. And uh, so opening for The Who, they've always been very cool with emerging artists. But in the case of Doc McGee, so... You were managed around the same time as Vintage Trouble, I'm taking it? Dude, I know the name. Totally, yeah. They were one of their roster. We, I don't think we ever played any shows with them. Our music was different. But totally remember Vintage Trouble. Why? You no managed him? Kiss opening uh, gigs for you? No, dude. We never. And um, No. And he, I remember the story, like, when he brought them back and put the makeup back on. But yeah. we were managed by McGee, like, in 03. This is a great conversation, dude. It's like, so, I'm, like, nerding out now because I'm trying to remember also. Well, McGee comes... I, I just, uh, to self-promote for a second, I wrote Please. a book about this guy, which just. Oh, came. wow. So when, when, you, when you get into the insular world of Dave Lee Roth, you're somebody who reads liner notes. And somebody yes. could go, yes, Steve I was his guitarist. But after that, it was Joe Holmes. And after you get a little too nerdy. So when you hear you that do. somebody has survived record deals, you want yes. to know. No, man. Is. Brother, we, we, Doc McGee was our, was our guy. Him and his brother were really God, like, right? right. He was the cool one, you know, like the, 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 the party or more. Doc McGee was a more reserved one. And he told us a story and I have to share it because you'd, you'd care about this kind of crap. And, yeah. and I never, I never forgot it. We were sitting in some meeting and he goes, you know, my wife told me that, you know, you know, we were hanging out. I was hanging out with my wife and she asked me, honey, no, I'm sorry. I can't try to remember the thing. The, the story was I'm hanging out with my wife and I told her, honey, um, if I lost all this money that I have and all my fortune, would you still love me? And she said, yeah, of course, I'd still love you. I'd miss you. But I still love you. <laughs> That's I, such I was, a Lee Roth joke right there. It, but it but it was it was Doc McGee's uh, joke, man. It was like and he told us what his wife said, you know. And uh but we we it was for me fantasy time because I grew up as a teenager admiring all the bands he, he managed, and then suddenly we got to be managed by him. And but we were already our story in a sense was that we were in our thirties. And so we were kind of too old to get signed. And and you know, and the thing is we were like twenty I 2930 when we got signed to Universal we were 20 I was 2930 and singer was 31 and then it was like we did a two year stint with that that kind of starts to fall then doc comes in and tries to get us another record deal that record deal doesn't happen but he got us to play he got us he got us to open as by 2005 now we're with doc from 2003 to 2006 or something he we opened for Def Leppard and and Brian Adams on a on a national tour like for the summer opening at like minor league baseball stadiums, but yeah. we were yeah. we were the we were the opening act so we were like and we had to make money by saving money. We stayed in two hotels total, two motels total out of the twenty five dates. The rest of it was like staying at friends' apartment, people that we'd meet. Can we crash in your place? You know, like literally, it was like that kind of experience. Our day-to-day manager for the tour was Snake, 
Dave the Snake Sabo. Skidder. Yes, dude. And so does that mean you're guy. also a diehard professional wrestling fan, or just leave that to Snake? I'll leave that to Snake, and uh, because and I'll leave the funny jokes to him, man. He would make me cry on the funny daily. guy. Yeah, he truly was like a naturally funny human being, and and good hearted too. He was like another one with a good heart and, and was looking out for us. I just didn't know better, man. I really there was so many things that I was dealing with trying to figure out my place in the world and and having gone through the band experience and the heartbreak of getting signed dropped and almost signed and touring and we at 35 things will break now and then you know then my wife got pregnant and I realized that it was time to make my own decisions because I was the guitarist in the band I wasn't the decision maker I wasn't the lead singer I wasn't so it was time for me to kind of grow up and that immediately just shifted everything and and I went straight to just I said I'm only going to make money making music because I by that time dude I was I I was building websites, driving gear for bands. I was just doing any gig that came. And then it was like, okay, I finished my master's degree that I hadn't finished because I had gotten signed. Then I got my doctoral degree and continued academia. And then this world came in as I was already here in Miami um, at the University yeah. of Miami. Just so grateful, dude. It's just like this shouldn't have happened kind of thing. That's how I see it. So I, I take it because of that, not for any other reason, because I had the heartbreak, so I know how bad it can feel, if that makes any sense. It, it makes a lot of sense. So sometimes when I talk to composers, they treat the composing like a nine to five. They're writing every single day, whether or not they have a project, and that's that. And then there's other people who go, I need a project, I need a deadline. Otherwise, I'm not a creative person. Which one do you fall into? Dude, I'm t option B only. Like, I can't. Dude, I've been playing video games. If I'm not working, I'm playing video games or I'm just watching movies. And it's like, I went to school because I needed, there's, you know, there are people like, well, you don't need to go to school to, to learn this. No, but some people need to go to school because without the deadlines and self-imposed or imposed by the situation they're in, they can't deliver. I couldn't, I couldn't, I could not, you know, I, I need something and I've just gotten good at deadlines. Like that's like the craft you build, like how to write to a deadline and know how to manage your time leading to it. So that that's where my skill sets develop. But but dude, no, I would if I didn't have it, I didn't and I didn't even have like, oh, I finally get to have my creative outlet. Creative outlet is is the work, man. You're getting to collaborate with amazing people and and it's a dream, dude. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Then to, to use another stereotypical composer thing on you, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of composers that I've spoken with who have great credits, and again, I'm saying you have great credits, mm -hmm. they hit this one point where they go, you know what, I should still be doing my rock stuff and I should still be writing hits for other people. And they resume this whole paying their dues thing while they have their, that career, they're doing that on the side. When you have an idea for a rock thing, where does it go? It goes nowhere like i i what it is is like i i you know what the weirdest thing you remember being young no like er <laughs> younger younger now i have to say it that way because it's true i yeah. remember being at a party and i remember some dudes at a party had gone and jammed and they were like in their 30s and i was like a 22 year old and they were in their 30s they were jamming i am the walrus or playing beatles I was like, look at all those people, the old people. 
I remember feeling like, look at all those old folks. I'm in my 50s. If I were to do any kind of rocking, I know how depressingly, what is it? Geriatric that would look. And, and so it's not even about look, because honestly, the truth is like, I do have, I was in a band with my brother and, and I live in Miami. My brother played bass and we've talked about jamming. I haven't been able to do it. I haven't followed through for multiple reasons. Sometimes I'm just busy or sometimes we just don't follow through on doing it. But I would love to jam with them and, and, and our drummer who is in the band who lives here and just play. But it's almost for a nostalgic sense, not because I'm trying to create something or have something for the world to hear that, you know, I, I almost stopped thinking that way, I guess, because I got so beat up, you know, through the, like, I got things were that I started looking at, well, if I'm going to do anything, I'm just want to do it really well. And and my obsession is getting good at what I do, Mm -hmm. not, you know what I mean? It's, and, and when I'm, asked to do it, I'll just do the best and and keep improving. But I'm not, I have met people like in on panels and stuff. They're like, what do you do when you're not writing for film? They're like, well, I'm writing a concerto and, or I have to practice piano. I wake up at five in the morning and, and finally on days off, I played for seven hours. I'm like, Jesus Christ. I got like both battery lines in Tears of the Kingdom. That's a huge accomplishment, man. That takes a lot of zonite mining in the depths. Like for me, that's kind of like my, I would, what's the next video game I can get into? Can I go into another world? And so I'm not thinking it's a creative way. I'm thinking of like a, a, you know, video games. I mean, that's been part of my life since, dude, I got the Atari 2600 in Costa Rica and -hmm. we had Space Invaders and Missile Command. And I, and I remember just going, I'll never get bored of this. And it was the joystick with the red button and the light driver too with this. And I remember I'll never, ever get bored of this game. And at some point, I remember feeling, oh, crap, I'm getting bored of this. No. And I would look at the cover because the, the, the software came in a cool box with art. Yes. And all, there was something about that whole experience that was like beautiful. And that stayed through when I got my first ColecoVision and started playing. And then my first Nintendo system that had Zelda. So you skipped Commodore 64 or is that and- not? Costa Rica thing. I did. I did. No. And then that was Panama and then back to Costa Rica and then Miami. But I skipped in television. I never had an television. I had a friend of mine who had it. And I'd go, you put these cards in where the dial pads were. And they had baseball for first, second, third yes. base, or whatever. And uh, that's, but I, I'm obs- like, my brother started playing Quake and, yeah. or Doom and then became Quake. And I would sit there and walk for hours watching him play. Like, just a fan of video games. So. Yeah. Well, the, in terms of video game music, that's been an interesting evolution because I remember, was it Quake or Doom 2 that Trent Reznor did some of the music for that? Quake. It was for Quake. And nobody talks about that when you talk about the Trent Reznor discography. And I remember there was a Genesis game that Green Jelly did the the music for. Well, I don't know that. that I don't but know that. Those were, you know, the kind of thing where maybe two instruments couldn't play at the same time through the sound card. It, it's very... <laughs> I think there was a lot of that. And I remember his soundtrack being very much ambient, like kind of like he just did for the killer. I don't know if you saw that movie. That movie should have been nominated for several things. The sound alone. If you haven't seen the film, um, it's like really good. And its sound design is so freaking pristine. That's the stuff I'm also nerd out. And it's like good sound in movies, like Mm -hmm. more than score. Sometimes I'm like, 
paying attention to how they're moving place because cameras place somewhere. And how do you do with sound? And the 7.1, the 5.1, yeah. the Dolby. But, yep. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not even, I don't have Atmos. I have like a 5.1 at home and that's just fine for me. And, and my, my studio is set up for 5.1, but I write in stereo mostly. And, uh, but it's sort of like the experience of sound and the choice of sound is something that I relish in film. And anyways, Killer, Kill, The Killer is a great film. It's a, it's a David Fincher film. And, and sure. I guess that's the reason why I brought it up is because Trent Reznor has rostered a score that's like Quake, you know, it's like, it's like you're listening, is there music? It's, it's almost like very synthy and weird, but it's perfect for the film. It marries sound together. So it's where we get into the nerdy conversation of, of you know, there has to be a good melody. No, dude, it just has to fit the picture, you know, and it has to fit the story. So anyway. Well, Two quick questions, and then I'll let you roam free and, uh, yeah. you know, be less upset that I made you talk about the, the McGee days and all that. Uh, the first no, dude, super. This is, on the, this is the best conversation I've had in a long time because it's so <laughs> weird. And, it, and it's kind of like the juice that's actually motivating all of us as opposed to, you know, the thing you did or recently. And, and we know the reason we do this, you know, but, but I'm just, man, I'm grateful to talk to you about this. This is like cool. Well, likewise, and that, that first question is, you find that people who are guitarists, they first, you know, pick up because they want to play their favorite songs, then they have that I'm playing too many notes phase, you know, whether it's Van Halen or Ingve or that, you know, 80s metal kind of thing, and then they get more concise, or, or so I assume, did you have your Van Halen obsession, I play too many notes phase of guitar? Okay, bro, this is like annoying. This is like the coolest thing ever um i went to the hollywood sportatorium growing up in miami after we left central america we were here and 15 16 years old started going to all the concerts and i saw all of the 80s bands live like i saw rat uh live rat is one of my top five band of all time by the way uh okay you know, lay it down the guitar riff or lay it down is one of my favorite riffs of all time i wrote a, my own solo over that riff at the end because i did this thing. i can't do it i don't have the guitar with me like that i could even show badly i mean i could show it but i'm like it's can, can is you this do a the video? OCA dance moves while you play it <laughs> but uh but it, but i the point is like i was like so yeah. into that band and but i went to see david lee roth when he after van halen i saw you know with steve i we snuck into the to the backstage and we jumped over this thing and we stood there a friend of mine george and i stood there looking at steve i froze we were frozen because he was standing there talking to some people meet and greet who people had legally gotten there but you know, and I was just standing there going, <gasps> and we were just, anyways, too many notes. We saw Michelangelo do a clinic in Miami. The and four he neck guitar, yeah. Yes, and so he was doing that and the arpeggio and all, all these incredible speed guitar playing. So too many notes was my era. And it took, it took grunge to kind of help me. And I was in a rock band that, where I was writing all the songs with my brother and all my solos were like, here comes the solo displays of awesomeness. And I can say that because I was pretty freaking good. It's just, I suck now. So I can show off back then. I was a really good electric guitar player, but now, you know, the joke is the older I get, the better I used to be, you know? And, um, and the thing is like, I was like, ah, and then I joined another band 
and that was in the 90s and and i started playing a solo over one of the things and the singer matt was like what are you doing and i go bro hold on dude I'm, and he's like dude just no you know so what do you just and that idea of like what's a melody what is in the way of the melody was kind of born there and for, like nirvana the solo for teen smells like teen spirit really that guy unemployed most of the 80s bands and single-handedly Outro.